Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. And also like kind of like the essence of them, you know, mm-hmm. what they're what they're about, their power and their strength of character. Mm-hmm. You want to join up and say, yeah, we're gonna do something really special here. Yeah. And you know, no one stepped on any uh, anyone else's toes. Like they didn't come into fittings, like I think it should be this or that. They knew that we had curated this over a long period of time. I had, you know, a big blown up sketch of their costume in the in the fitting room when they came in and they knew what they were going to try on. And then there was a lot of the storytelling that was created through uh, a team of people building Wakandan garments. Yeah. We knew we were building something special. We didn't know how big it was going to be. And, you know, I continued to, to immerse myself in the creativity. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I learned for the first time last night reading the book that you started in theater, which I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to be an actress or you were in theater to be an actress? Well, I was one of those teenagers that my mother put in all kinds of programs, after school programs that had drama, that had dance and, you know, the creative arts and uh You know, my mother wasn't necessarily like a creative arts person. I think she needed her kids to go away for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. And um, I enjoyed them and she saw that. And so I was in programs like Uhu Sasa, which means freedom now and 
We'd have African drumming in the grass in between all kinds of classes. And that was in Upward Bound, which is a popular inner city club in a sense. You know, it gives you remedial classes and it also has an art component. So I always gravitated towards the drama. Mm. And I kind of thought I was very dramatic and uh, people kind of liked my spoken word and I wrote poetry. So when I got to college, um, I actually didn't major in theater at first. I majored in special education. Um, Which was a family, that was in your family, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was following like family dynamic of teachers and that kind of stuff. My aunt and everybody in the South that was a relative of mine had a teaching background. That's kind of like a historical thing for African-American families, you know. And after two years, I really kept gravitating to the theater. So I got my indoctrination into like, you know, being actually in a real proscenium stage in theater in college. That sparked everything. From there, I did uh, internships and opera I went back home after I graduated and did an internship there in a theater. And I remember specifically, you were doing internships in costume, in costume uh, for theater. Okay. And did you? How did you? I, I was wondering this when I was reading last night. How did you know to do that? How did you know if you did those internships or if you did that apprenticeship that that's how you would learn, as opposed to? Um, oh, I'll just keep trying to go to a class that maybe will teach me this. Yes. And at Hampton, they weren't teaching costume design, but I declared it on my own as a major. And I did every play, every musical, step shows. I did everything that was happening on campus. And at the end of my four-year education, I realized that I hadn't been formally trained So I thought, you know, maybe I'm not ready to step out into the professional uh, world of costume design without some kind of foundation. So it was recommended to me from uh, my professors that I apply different places for internships. And at the time in my hometown, there was a great internship where they gave you an apartment and I, uh, you know, applied for food stamps and I just worked for free in the theater day in and day out in the costume shop during the day. And I ran the plays with a team in the evenings. Uh, And then from there, it was recommended to me that I further my training and apply to the Santa Fe Opera. And it's renowned for its apprenticeship program and you have to be recommended so I was recommended and I, you know, got in and packed up my little Volkswagen Rabbit and headed west. <laughs> <laughs> How was Santa Fe? It was amazing um, arriving there. It was very rural. I didn't expect that. Uh, where they had our housing, uh, there were like chickens walking around. And, <laughs> and then a few of us got together and we rented a house in the artist colony on Camino del Monte Sol. Yeah. And uh, we spent our, our internship summer. It's from like May to September. And you build like six operas from the ground up in one summer. Which sounds like 
not, not trial by fire, but like you really, I mean, that's how you learn, right? If you're thrown in and you really have to do it. Well, you work in teams. There are designers from all over the world that come in to design these operas. There's a uh, first hand, there's a head cutter on each team. And you, you, you're looking at sketches by costume designers that are, you know, uh, working in the industry and you're building their, their work. And then at the end of the season, there's an intern opera where, uh, you know, you get to design your own opera. And there's an internship program for the sing- singers, the opera singers, and you, they pair you up. How and, cool. Does yeah. it still exist today? It does. How rad. It's really a great program. And people come from all over to Santa Fe because of the beautiful sunsets, the beautiful sky. Uh, and the opera stage has a backdrop that opens up to the sunset. So people, as they're coming in to see the show, you know, and you hear the orchestra warming up. And then you see this gorgeous sunset. And when the sun sets, then the backdrop comes down and the opera begins. Oh, how cool. It's beautiful. Wow. When you were doing that piece, or even later when you would find yourself in L.A. and you were working in theater here before Mm -hmm. you started working on movies, did you ever, were you ever thinking like, this is where I'm going? Like, I'm doing this thing to get here? Or were you just like... I'm present in this moment. This is what's happening today. This is the work I'm doing today. I think I was present because I wanted to learn everything I could. I sort of realized things along the way about myself. After the opera, I knew I didn't want to sew. Mm. I had tiny <laughs> tiny holes in my fingers from all the handwork. I mean, oh, we built wow. six operas from the ground up. Every step of the way was uh, an opportunity. So after Santa Fe, uh, family relatives offered uh, a room uh, in Los Angeles and said, come on out here and pursue costumes. Cool. And pack the rabbit up again. (laughs) (laughs) Headed west. Uh, I remember coming in on the 5 Freeway and the police were doing a round robin to slow the traffic down. And I thought, this is a great intro to California. <laughs> to your own processional. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like, welcome. <laughs> so you you get here. And what year was this? That was 85. Okay. So mm-hmm. it's 1985. The internet doesn't exist. It's mm-hmm. like you can get on somewhere and go, where do, how do I do this? What? So what are your first steps when you don't know what to do? to find a job and find work and make connections. Yes. I uh, didn't realize that Los Angeles was not the place for theater necessarily. Yeah. So I was pursuing theater in Los Angeles at first. And I remember walking along Santa Monica Boulevard where there's that little row of theater. They're like 10-seat theaters. Yes, (laughs) totally. And there's like five or six of them in a row. I remember going over there and I was just fascinated how small these little, you know, little matchbox theaters were. 
And, you know, looking in the paper, looking anywhere where someone was looking for a costume designer and going on that journey. And it kind of dead-ended because I wasn't a professional yet. I, I had done a lot of drawings in my portfolio that were on spec. I would read a play, and usually it was like a big period piece, you know, Vanya, Vanya's Three Sisters, and I would have the illustration in there. But I hadn't really realized anything mm. and uh so I did wasn't getting any work until one day I looked in the uh the calendar section of the LA Times and I saw that the LA Theater Center was opening a new uh structure that had five theaters under one roof and they had like an experimental stage they had a proscenium they had the thrust they had theater in the round and the picture on the calendar section was of the staff and they were standing on the stairwell that kind of curved up to the mezzanine. And I thought, brand new theater, five under one roof. I'm going down there. They're going to yeah. give me a job. Yeah. <laughs> and did you, you actually went to the theater? You didn't call? You didn't, or no, you just I showed just, up? I showed up and they liked the fact that I had worked at the opera. Um, I had a good recommendation from them. I used to run the the fast changes in the, in the wings at the opera, and I really loved it. I felt like I was good at it. So they hired me right away to run the plays uh, as a dresser. So I did Pam Greer's Fool in Love and Madge Sinclair, uh, Bozeman and Lena, Moses Gunn. I'm curious... Because as you're saying this, you know, I just went down there and, you know, I saw this thing and I'm like, I'm going. Mm -hmm. It feels like that was maybe your story a lot. Like uh, there are many times in your career where you found yourself in a situation you've never been before. Mm -hmm. You know, the first time you're on a movie set or the first time you're getting notes back or Mm -hmm. the first time you're walking into Marvel. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's always been inside of you to, to not be afraid to do something you've never done? Are you fearful in that moment? Or are you like, I've got this? Like if I just put myself, I'm thinking of listeners right now who are like, I'd love to try something new, or I'd love to go up for the promotion, or I'd love to go hit on that guy in the bar, but they're terrified. So where did that come from in you to Mm. have the courage to go down to a theater you didn't know anybody at? I feel like there there was enough encouragement uh, in my life I was the kind of kid who could play alone for hours and entertain myself. I was encouraged to draw and to create as a kid. The times that I was in those programs, I was encouraged that, you know, I could be an actress. (laughs) Yeah. I really wanted to pursue the arts. And I felt like in each phase, I had a little something I could bring with me. It wasn't the full complement of things to uh, offer or bring with me, but there was a little something that I had, whether it was the uh, opera experience or my school experience, that I could talk about. And I think that, you know, cracked the door open and, and allowed me to sort of push my way in. Yeah. So once I got to Los Angeles and I went down to the uh, L.A. Theater Center, I talked about the opera. Yeah. And that was my calling card. 
So I guess there was some bravery in me, I guess, uh, coming along. I wasn't overly confident. I'm not an overly confident or, or boastful kind of a person. I'm not very braggadocious. I don't want to be that person. Yeah. So I try to uh, let what my work says lead me instead of telling you. Yeah. Show, don't tell. Yeah. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas the food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. You're at the theater. Mm -hmm. How do you make the jump from theater to film? 
Well, I'm at the theater. I'm loving every minute of it. I'm very involved. People like my involvement. There's not another Black woman around, and there are some Black plays happening. So I had a little family. I would stay at, stay late, and I'd run the shows, and then we'd all hang out afterwards and, you know, go have drinks and food, you know, how actors are. And... Uh, it was uh, a show that came to the L.A. Theater Center called The Night for Dancing. And there were dancers that were doing a performance to the music of Stevie Wonder. And it was very, very popular. And I would stay and watch this. Uh, they rented out one of the theaters and I would stay after and I'd watch this performance. And I was, you know, enthralled by it. And I approached the choreographer and I said you need a costume designer. And uh, because I was working in this big theater, I had access to stock and all kinds of stuff that I felt like I could design their show. He welcomed me in, and I began to design uh, A Night for Dancing, and it became more popular, and it went to a little studio in South Central, uh, Lula Washington's dance studio on Adams and Western or Adams and La Brea, and the, you know, the cars would line the streets to come into this little studio to see this dance performance. Cool. And, you know, back then, when you're designing, you're also running the show, you're also doing the laundry, you're doing everything. <laughs> so I was there almost every night. One of my school friends, Robbie Reed, who's a casting director, she brought Spike Lee to see the performance. As I mentioned, I was work, walking Santa Monica Boulevard looking for work as a professional costume designer and really stumbling. And so I brought my portfolio with me every night of the show. And a, a friend of mine was there and I opened the portfolio to show her what I was showing these people that I was trying to get work from. And I was asking her, she was a pro, I was asking her, you know, what's wrong with my portfolio? And so she's looking and then Spike is looking. You know, we're all the same age. Everybody's like, you know, peers. Spike wasn't very known. He had just released She's Gotta Have It. And uh, so Spike started to talk to me about how to get more film experience. And I was like, I'm talking about getting a theater job. <laughs> I'm a thespian. <laughs> And he said, go to USC or UCLA and sign up in the senior thesis, uh, senior film studies department to get on a student thesis project. Yeah, I thought that was a good idea. So I drove that rabbit down to uh, USC and I signed up to be on a student thesis project. And before I knew it, I was on, on Saturdays. I was hearing rolling, cut, quiet on the set for the first time. Hmm. And I just was, I was just mesmerized by, you know, the, the quietness of it. Like there were two people sitting on a porch swing having a conversation. It was out way out somewhere where there were orange groves. And I couldn't hear them from where I was standing. I thought, this is different, but I think I can do this. You know, yeah. I've been doing Vanya. I've, I did the English cat at the opera. <laughs> You know, <laughs> let me add it. Right. It probably felt a little bit like a completely different world. Yes. And in some ways, 
maybe harder in some ways, maybe easier. Cause I you're was not curious. Doing this. Yeah. I couldn't even evaluate whether it was hard or, or easy, but I just saw two people and they were quietly having a conversation on a porch swing. And I thought, you know, wow, you know, I'm used to the stage and the theater and sitting back in the, in the seats and looking at how it rolls out and all of that. Before long, uh, Spike called me uh, one early one morning and, you know, said he was the man of my dreams. <laughs> and I was hired to be the costume designer on School Days, which was my first film. But I was living in a little studio apartment in Koreatown, just making my rent every month. Uh, I was doing a little freelance for other designers because I met so many designers at the theater center. I mean, they had five productions going on at one time. Mm. And I was like the ACD, the assistant costume designer. I was doing multiple projects, you know, managing multiple things at once. And I would meet these designers down at LATC that were also film designers. And I'd ask them questions. I don't feel like I ever really got a full answer. You know, it was just all felt very general. Um, but they liked the work I did uh, at the theater center. So occasionally they would call me and ask me if I wanted to freelance and age something for them. And so I was aging in my tub, in my apartment, and my hands were always blue. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised, and I guess I shouldn't be, but I was surprised reading the book how many artists you work with in this line of work, like knitters and textiles and beads. And obvious, mm -hmm. it makes so much sense reading it now. I mean, just to look at your work, it makes sense. But I don't think I ever understood the level of detail and how many people you would need to make something look the way that it does. Mm -hmm. Did you know that you were going to need all of those collaborators way back then? Was that sort of instinctual or is that just part of the job? Kind of everybody knows that you're going to need, hey, I might need someone someday who can cut this kind of dress or I might need someone who could who works in lace. Like how did you get this mm – -hmm this army of people that you could call to make stuff. I think that the experience I had at the opera showed me that there were several teams. Um, we had a craft department, a specialties department, you know, a draping uh, department. You know, I knew that I couldn't perfect all of those crafts. Yeah, yeah. So I had to bring people in that I knew you know, the best way to go about getting something done in the most beautiful way, because I was exposed to some pretty beautiful um, things, some beautiful work that was done by these artisans in opera and in theater. Um, my first film, I brought the person who uh, recommended, uh, wrote a recommendation for me to be at the opera was an amazing knitter. I, that's what I'm thinking of. Yes. I literally told her this story of this sweater. Yes, Georgia Carney, yes. darling. And I called her and I said, I want you to knit a sweater for school days. And she showed me how to design it on a grid so that she could count the stitches. So there's a whole story about yeah, that sweater. Yeah, in the book. In the book. <laughs> I didn't realize that you were making 
that you were actually making clothing mm -hmm. when you're doing a movie that's more contemporary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess in my head, I thought, oh, you're you're shopping. Mm -hmm. They're going in, they're pulling, like a stylist mm -hmm. would pull. Mm -hmm. But the amount of things you actually made and continue, I mean, obviously now, I'm just astounded by the detail in that. So how, <laughs> I'm sorry that I keep asking you how, okay. but I'm just astounded. What in you said, I'm going to have my friend knit a custom sweater, a one-of-a-kind sweater, that if we lose it, we're in trouble. What? Why would you lean into that as opposed to, I'm going to go find a pretty great sweater for her to wear in this scene? Yeah, I think that was the way I was uh, brought up. It, in theater? In theater. Yeah. That you make it, mm. and then it's perfect. I think that there's a lot of uh, costume designers that do a lot of shopping and and they do incredible work. I've always been a little intimidated by that skill because you have to have a lot of alliances. Um, and I grew to have them around, you know, different big cities. You know, people knew me and I could go in and there's studio services and you pull out a thousand things to find the one. But I never really liked that process. Mm. I like the process of like really telling the story in a way where I could be a part of creating it from, like, its origin. Yeah. And I know that, you know, there are so many great designers out there where you can buy some incredible things, but once I get them, I break them down and I add the story. You know, I add that extra layer that makes that sweater look like you've owned it for a long time and you stretched it out and you've, you know, pushed your knees through it from like reading a book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market, because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach thrivemarket.com slash rach this episode is brought to you by progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly 750 dollars on average plus auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. 
Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The level of detail I was so inspired by. Because I think that it's easy to look at the work that you've done and it's beautiful and it's acclaimed, but I really didn't understand the nuance. And I'm sure I still don't until I was reading the book. Until, mm-hmm. you know, you're explaining in... Wakanda, I think it is, mm-hmm. or maybe it's the first movie, mm-hmm. um, the talismans on the warrior's mm-hmm. breastplate, that yes. it's, this is um, what each of those mean. And I was looking at it in the picture while reading mm-hmm. about it, and you can barely see it in the photo. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I just, I'm so inspired by the artistry in something that maybe only you notice, mm-hmm. or maybe only the actor is aware of. And or maybe like the cumulative nature of all of the details together bring some bring out some kind of emotion mm. or you know add that extra you know that extra edge that helps us understand it more. We may not see everything but we feel it you know we feel it in its totality yeah. you know in the whole composition of it. I like to believe that just going from theater to film and knowing about like the aesthetic distance in theater, you know, you stand back into the audience and you look at the clothes from that aesthetic distance because a lot of things are lost. And so things have to be bigger or bolder, you know, the way that the harmony of the colors come together when you're looking at a uh, a stage performance, you know, the, the, it's very much in your face, and but you do have to create bigger shapes uh, in order for them to read. Mm-hmm. And then the aesthetic distance with film is right up in your face. And you have an opportunity to tell a person's story with a lot of details because the camera might land on it, you know, if in a close-up or just by happenstance in a shot. So the more detail you can give uh, the frame, the more magic is in the frame. Mm. I remember Ray Liotta's casino, I believe it was, he was in. He had a babysitter who he was uh, asking to go on a run, a drug run, and he was super paranoid from snorting all this cocaine. And he was telling her, you know, don't use the phone. I've got to go out. And, you know, go get something. I'll be right back. Don't use the phone. And, you know, immediately after he leaves, she picks up the phone to call her mother. And I remember her her nail polish was all chipped. And, you know, she had black nail polish, but it was chipped. And it gave her gave me a sense of her character and in a way that was so, like, up close. Hmm. And I thought, wow, I, I can actually tell stories with little tiny details like that. Yeah. So I'm always trying to add a small detail that you you might you may catch. I interviewed a director earlier this summer and she was talking about a scene where her costume designer it was a little girl who was maybe 12 or something and the director had walked on set and the little girl was wearing one sock that was really bright white and one that was, you know, like an old dingy. sock, a dingy <laughs> sock. And she, Kelly was saying it, it just made her heart sore yeah. because she said that's real. Yeah. And it was something that so few people would notice and you won't see it in the scene, mm-hmm. but it felt like a, what an actual little girl do, would do when she would put socks, her socks on. Exactly. Period. So if you get a script or when you get a script mm-hmm. or a story, how do you build the character, mm-hmm. where do you start? 
Well, I'm inspired by the story. Uh, usually it sparks something, uh, some experience that I've had or some place I'd like to go, some experience that I may have experienced, and I'll go there first. And I'll look for the elements of that experience, whether it's my time in New York or, you know, vacation in Jamaica or the colors that come up for me. I might use a painter, Romare Bearden. I might look at the photographers of the 1920s. Whatever the story brings up, mm-hmm. um, I start there. And then I'm usually fascinated by a connection that I could make. Uh, whether I'm seeing the Great Migration or I'm seeing a beautiful beach with a sunset and, you know, flowers that create a color palette. Or if the tone of the film is dark, I'll look at, you know, Im- darker darker uh, photographic images of strife and struggle in general. Look at deep contrast. I'll start there. I'll, I'll start looking for art. And usually that gives me details of, oh, this is what they wore during this time period. And it was, a, it was winter in this city. So I, I could use wools. So then I start looking at the actual elements of, of, of garments, you know, coats and suits and what kind of what kind of materials? Well, how heavy, heavy were the materials then? And then I will do an actual physical uh, palette using fabrics. And I start to see the story a little bit, a little tiny bit at a time. Um, and then I will have a conversation uh, with the director. How um, long does your that process where you're sort of downloading and, and doing mm-hmm. research, how long does that, how long do you usually get? Well, that happens usually the whole time I'm on a project. Okay. So if we have 12 weeks uh, of prep, that's three months. Mm-hmm. And uh, there comes a point where start, uh, garments are being created or purchased and all of that, the wheels start to turn. But I'm constantly immersing myself in like the nuances of the project uh, based on the art that I'm pulling together. I'm discovering new stuff all the time. I'm keeping books. I'm buying books. I'm talking to historians. I'm figuring out, like, who else I can talk to that knows more about this, uh, that can bring some information, new information. Where do you store those ideas? Is this, like, Pinterest? Are they screenshots <laughs> on your phone? Or yeah. is it physical Everything. Copies? Everything. Everything. Uh, Before there was Pinterest and there was my phone, I would store it in big volume, like notebooks. You know, it was a lot of copying. Do you still have those? I got rid of them because they were just taking up a lot of space. And I realized that I had it all on my, I had it all digital. Oh, yeah, that's true. We do use Box and Dropbox and uh, Pinterest Mm -hmm. and any way we can share. Uh, With Marvel, it's usually their server because it's all top secret. Yeah. 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 
but um, most of the research is kept in shared folders with my team. When did you start building the company of people that you now work with? Because I am assuming at this place in your career, you've got a team Mm -hmm. and you've got the same people that you work with again and again. Mm -hmm. At what point in your career did you realize, okay, I'm actually, I, I need to be able to count on the same people. So that means I need to actually have a core group that I can call on. Well, that's been very difficult because I came out of independent film and I was by Coastal for 15 years, bouncing between Spike Lee and Robert Townsend, Keenan Ivory Wayans. And so 15 years I'd come back and the same people that I'd worked with, uh, you know, a year or so before were on to other films. Los Angeles was much more Hollywood. So if you were in the Costumers Union, you got jobs on Hollywood films and coming back to do an independent film called I'm Gonna Get You Sucker was <laughs> not necessarily like a feather in your cap, I guess, at the time. So I had to always uh, pull uh, my group together. I was a young uh, costume designer and everybody was always trying to tell me how it's done in Hollywood. And then I'd go back to Spike in New York and I'd do Mo Better Blues. And I had a team there of uh, people who worked in the fashion industry and I could count on them for lots of things. So it made it a little bit easier uh, going back to Spike, but, but it was still, you know, recreating each time a new crew. Uh, And then as I uh, started to work with some of the same people, I'm still not top tier. So everyone's trying to excel. You know, everyone's trying to freelance and it's a freelance life. So if so, if you're working for, you know, a person who's doing a 80 million dollar movie and I have a 20 million dollar movie, that means salaries are not going to be as great. Right. So you're kind of like puzzling your crew together. And it wasn't until, I guess, on Black Panther 1, I uh, had assembled a crew that was supervised by someone who had done big superhero films before, which I needed. So that was the first movie that you really... Not even then, I think, because that person decided to go on to another film about you know, halfway through prep, and he took, you know, half the crew with him. No. Yeah, and it was... Oh, I'm stressed out, and I wasn't... I mean, it it worked out. It was all okay, but oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I just felt like for a while there, until I could replace everyone, I was just, like, walking two feet off the ground. And, you know, my head was spinning, like, wow, okay, I have to find you know, a new supervisor. I have to find a new background costumer. I have to find, you know, all of these key people. Well, this is wild to me because you were so established at that point. I mean, I knew sort of the top line films that you had done, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't until reading the book that I understood how Mm -hmm. many movies you, Mm -hmm. how many movies we all know Mm -hmm. that you have done. Mm -hmm. So I was telling you earlier, having written books that I had, I wrote five before anyone knew who I was and people are like oh Black Panther but you're like I have been doing this for (laughs) decades so at that point you're walking into that movie yeah and then halfway through prep you have to rebuild the team yeah and that's already a pretty stressful situation I'm imagining because nobody wants to come on a show 
where the money has been mostly spent because like halfway through prep, you've decided where things are going to, you know, happen and you're allocating all the funds. And so now you're asking someone to come in and manage uh, a budget that they didn't create. So it was very difficult. Wow. How how big was the crew on that movie for um, you? Well, there's like 50 people. Wow. You know, so you got, uh, and it was, this is an early stage. So maybe we had 15 and eight of them walked away. And the the other ones that were left were, you know, ancillary kind of uh, jobs, not the core jobs. Mm. Uh, because I depended on the person to say, you know, hey, this is how you do a superhero film. You know, it's going <laughs> to yes. be different. Yeah. But those that stayed were very dedicated and they were very helpful in finding what we needed. And it worked out. I remember Victoria Alonzo from Marvel. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm scared because, like, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to be fired because I lost my crew. <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, her office called and says, hello, Ruth, do you have a minute for Victoria? And I was like, oh, my God, this is it. <laughs> And I pulled over to the side of the road and she got on the phone and she was like, wow, you know, I, when I put my daughter to bed, you know, I say that whole speech from the help, you know, you are beautiful, you are smart, you are this, you're that. And she said, I just want you to know that this is your job and no one's going to take it from you. Mm. And, you know, I walk in my office sometimes and I think, how am I going to get this done? I want you to know you can't be afraid to ask for help. So if you need help, please just let somebody know and we'll make sure that you get some help. Yeah. So that made me feel so much better. I felt like I was behind a curtain before then. And then I could just fling it open and yeah. say, yeah, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and uh, and it worked out. Mm. It worked out. Did you know when you were at any point in making that movie did you know, did you understand what you were making? Did you understand how big it was going to be or how it was going to change your life forever? Did you know in the process? I didn't know it was going to change my life uh, because I had already done some pretty life-changing movies Mm -hmm. like Malcolm X Mm -hmm. and I was in the middle of the desert at the pyramids on a Spike Lee joint and, you know, I felt the gravitas of that moment as well. And so I likened it to, you know, being in Egypt and creating the Hajj that Malcolm X took and recreating it. And this Those pictures felt- are really cool, by the way. Thank when you. I turned that page, I was like, damn it, she's so cool. This is so annoying. I need to do cooler stuff. All like- I knew that in Egypt, I needed to cover my hair. I needed to be respectful as a woman, you know, adapt the customs of the time and embrace the culture. And and I did. And it felt I felt like I was a part of them. You know, they even said to me, welcome home mm. all the time. But on Black Panther, it... But on Black Panther, we all felt like we were doing something special. In conversation with Ryan Coogler and, you know, meeting Denai Gurira and Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke and Michael B. Jordan, Chadwick It must Boseman. be hard to work with such unattractive people all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you just walk around like, what is happening? <laughs> And also, like, kind of like the essence of them, you know, mm. what, they're, what they're about, their power and their strength of character. Mm. You want to join up 
and say, yeah, we're going to do something really special here. Yeah. And, you know, no one stepped on any uh, anyone else's toes. Like, they didn't come into fittings. Like, I think it should be this or that. They knew that we had curated this over a long period of time. I had, you know, a big blown-up sketch of their costume in the in the fitting room when they came in, and they knew what they were going to try on. And then there was a lot of the storytelling that was created through uh, a team of people building Wakandan garments. Yeah. So uh, we knew we were building something special. We didn't know how big it was going to be. And, you know, I continued to immerse myself in the creativity. I think it's like a real zone that you get into when you're trying to stay focused and, you know, when you you know, have these little hurdles or along the way. And, you know, not every garment worked, not every outfit was cool, not every color worked, not every fabric worked. So was there was, anything that you made and you were super disappointed because you're like, it just, it's not uh, gonna... Queen Ramonda along the way. I mean, I have a lot of rejects <sighs> where I put Angela in like all white uh, in the first movie that was a jersey knit and it just didn't cooperate and... I remember looking at the photos of her fitting and she's standing there very regal, you know, trying to support me. And yet this drippy, <laughs> uh-huh. droopy fabric is yeah. just not cooperating. Stuff like that. We had blankets from oh, South Africa. About that. Will you tell that story? <laughs> well, Ryan Coogler felt that he couldn't direct a movie about Africa having never gone himself personally. And so uh, he turned Marvel down a couple times. And and finally, they, they sent him on a trip. And he went to South Africa to be in the Basutu village. And he saw that they had these blankets that were handed down centuries ago. And they had all these symbols that represented royalty or represented the harvest. They were also great horsemen. They were cattle herders, so they would wear these blankets on their horses. And so he uh, immediately told me that he wanted me to get these blankets and that we would use them as shields for the border tribe. Uh, I was to print vibranium on one side and... We had to figure out what that looked like, vibranium, since it doesn't exist. (laughs) And it became like the silver foil. And uh, so we printed the silver foil. We came up with this with some Wakandan symbols, printed it on one side of the blankets. And we had a big day where there was a camera test, very close to shooting, um, just a few weeks before actual shooting. Marvel saw the blankets and thought they were too stiff. You know, they had a heavy pile. They didn't They didn't fold. They weren't really all that supple. That was a shock because I had already imported 150 of these blankets from South Africa. It took them a long time to come in through customs. Ryan wanted, a, 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 you know, multicolors. He, we had to We had to find different colors and wait for different colors to come in so we had a good mix. And now Marvel's rejecting them. So at first we thought, well, we'll go to a blanket uh, manufacturer and have them custom weave the blankets. And we sent them the artwork and they said, sure, we'll do it for you in six months. And uh, we did. We had three weeks yeah. over the Christmas holiday. Yeah. 
And so one of my colleagues, she went and got a men's razor and uh, electric razor. And she shaved the pile off the blankets. Took her about two hours. Another colleague took the blanket out outside and he burned it. He said, there's two fibers here. There's one synthetic and one natural fiber. I think I could burn this blanket down to, you know, a thinner, thinner pile. And he did in like 15 minutes, came back in with a blanket that smelled awful. And we tried everything to get the smell out of it because 15 minutes over two hours seemed like a deal. Yeah. But we couldn't get the smell out. And so we ended up shaving all the blankets. That's what you guys did for Christmas that yeah, year, right? Exactly. Christmas was canceled, and we sent Marvel a video of one of the uh, stuntmen uh, doing all of the uh, uh, acrobatics in, with the blanket, and then they approved it. Okay. Gosh, the yeah. skills that you have to have in your job the grace under pressure, mm-hmm. the figure it out. Mm-hmm. The I mean, God bless that woman who was like, what if we got a razor and yes, shaved? Yes, electric razor. I mean, and then so... you had to shave both sides of the blanket yes, too, right? before we <laughs> printed them. <laughs> the level of skill that you have to have over all of these years. And some things are just so like, you know, it's a simple solution that right. you're always thinking so much bigger, you know, oh, we have to call a blanket manufacturer yeah. and have these redone. She was like, I'm just going to go get an electric razor and shave it down. So smart. (laughs) I'm curious how you manage the personalities that you are dressing. Mm. Because I also, I guess I'm ridiculous, that I never thought about an actor having a say in what they were wearing. And I was reading that in the book where you would talk about one of the actors wanted to take the sleeves off her dress. Or I never really thought, of course, you'd want them to feel great in what they're wearing, Mm -hmm. but that then them wanting to adjust something might affect or Mm -hmm. add to your workload. So how do you navigate that? Well, I always say that they're in front of the camera. And so I have to be conscious of that. And sometimes it's nerves. And I also have to know that my mother was a parapsychologist for the city. We had a lot of psychology books around the house growing up. And uh, I feel like uh, it comes into good use when I see that they're really just nervous. Yeah. And they're unsure. So I can talk them into a costume. You know, I can explain a lot about why it's going to be great. And other times... I actually may agree with them. Like when it came to taking the sleeves off of the dress, uh, when Denai was in her trailer and they were ready for her on set and they called me to her trailer and she just was standing there in the mirror and she said, I just feel like my arm should be out. And I called the seamstress over and, you know, we were all like, oh, God, how do we explain to, you know, the set that we're going to need 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. which is an eternity when they're waiting. And there were two great little seams at the, you know, at the shoulders that we decided we would, you know, pick the sleeve out from those seams and really turned out beautiful. Mm, it is. It's really pretty. I love the description in the book of the seamstress's hand shaking, shaking. as she was trying to sew it because you guys are the trying to get tinch, it done so fast. Like we're standing over her with like laser focus, which isn't the best thing to do. But, you know, there's a point where someone has to snatch it and run. Yeah. You do the first movie. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. I mean, 
massive, huge, all the things. Mm-hmm. How did your life change? Yeah, I was shot out of a cannon when the first one mm-hmm. landed. And I went to Africa to see what I had been researching on Wakanda for so long. And I thought I could stay there all the way through the end of January to February. And I was uh, sorely uh, surprised when I was told, like, you have to come back because we're starting the press for the film, the the rollout for the film. Did you think you were going to do press for it? Had you ever done press for a film before? Well, I have been nominated twice before, but it it wasn't like Black Panther. And I think that the press run changed. Like, you do this whole thing, you know, you have much more to talk about. People are more interested in talking about behind the scenes than they were when I was nominated for Amistad or Malcolm X. You know, Amistad was a really lonely nomination to me Mm, because nobody else on the film except for the DP was nominated. So, you know, there was a lot to talk about, but no one was really interested in hearing about it. You know, Debbie Allen wasn't a part of the the Mm. celebration. Steven Spielberg wasn't a part of the celebration. Didn't get the nominations, wasn't at the party. Wow. So I was like, well, okay, you know, but Black Panther was the opposite. Well, in those two movies, because they're historical pieces, Mm -hmm. you're recreating, whereas... Black Panther feels like you were inventing something that didn't exist, but you were doing it. I mean, history is always weaving its way through your work, but I don't want to like pee my pants in front of you, but it really, (laughs) it's so, there aren't words for it because it's, it's so layered. It's so thoughtful. And we keep referencing the book, but listeners Mm -hmm. should go just, just for the photos that are inside of it. So you can understand. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved reading about how much history you didn't just go, here's a costume. Mm-hmm. You were like, this is pulled from this very specific region of Africa. This mm-hmm. is why the print looks this way. Mm-hmm. This is why it's this exact drape. It's so thoughtful, mm-hmm. but also future. Like, yeah. what? Yeah, that's kind of the definition of Afrofuture, yeah. that we took history, we took um, ancient customs, we took um, ancient techniques, and we infused technology into that. And, you know, created something beautiful that, you know, was created in 3D printing uh, or was uh, done in a way that was a little more modern, but still had the same meaning behind it. That's what I think also, you know, we aim to not create something that felt like Africa was just one big monolithic place um, yeah. You know, thousands of tribes throughout Absolutely. the continent, and we picked just 12 of them to be inspired by. And once you delve into the details, there's so much to pull from. There's yeah. so much beauty and artistry and texture and prints and all kinds of stuff that you can use and bring into technology. So that was very exciting. You start to do press for it, Mm -hmm. and now it's a party, right? Because everybody wants to talk about it. Everybody's involved. (laughs) Yeah. What did that feel like for you? All of a sudden, you're in front of the camera. It's a a different thing than what you've been doing. Yeah, it was very overwhelming. Yeah, I bet. And I wasn't sure, uh, like, what to say no to, so I said yes to everything, and it was exhausting. People coming in and out of my house— doing interviews, wanting costumes set up on mannequins, 
at the same time, it was a celebration, you know, of culture. I was very proud, you know, at the premiere to see people dressed up. You know, mostly people were dressed up like coming to America. And I was like, no. no. <laughs> but that's all we had before yeah, then. Yeah, so that's true. They wanted to be Prince Akeem, you right, know. Right. And I was like, this is not coming to America, folks. <laughs> but I think they got it. Yeah. You know, when I saw in Africa, they were just drumming, coming into the theaters. Cool. And then, you know, in Korea, they were wearing their, you know, traditional hanboks and I took great pride in being authentic. You know, the humbugs that we have, we used in the first movie were actually uh, made and designed by a humbug designer in Korea. Mm. It was really a rewarding experience. I had I had shoppers all uh, in, going all over Africa and WhatsApping me in the middle of the night with pictures and things. So, also, how do you get that job? Because yes, <laughs> sign me up. Yes, you had a good job, that one. I'm curious. Then the first movie happens. Then there's a second movie, mm-hmm. and it would feel like. Tell me if I'm wrong. You're like, okay, we have to level up on something that was already so beautiful and big. And how do you then start to navigate? Because now it's you're you're keeping the original, but now you're adding Mayan culture into it. Like, I feel like I'm fangirling so hard. Yeah. And it's kind of embarrassing me, but <laughs> I don't think that those movies would be what they are without your storytelling. Okay. I mean, if you're watching, I mean, no offense to mm-hmm. everybody else who made it, mm-hmm. but if you're watching, like, I'm thinking of um, the most recent because it's mm-hmm. more fresh in my mind. But you're watching those sweeping scenes of Wakanda and you're coming mm-hmm. down and the, you know, people mm-hmm. in the market square and just all. The costumes are everything in that movie. So how, how, how do you even start again? <laughs> yeah, it's daunting because the success of the first film uh, created a, uh, a sentiment amongst everyone that wanted to be a part of it. They knew this now and they could, you know, come into this and I had to temper them. I had to, you know, pull them down to earth and say, yes, I know you loved Black Panther 1, but we have a new set of uh, things that we have to achieve. And the same process of learning and implementation that went in the first film is going to happen in the second one. So you can't think you know too much. You have to be, you have to approach this with a little bit humility because the Tolokans were based on the Mayas and we needed historians to help us. I had books and things that I, I, I kept my self-reading and, and looking at images and asking questions because I didn't want to assume. I mean, we went into Wakanda knowing a little bit about Africa. We went into this without knowing anything really about the Mayans. So there was that. Uh, there was also nine superheroes that were introduced in Wakanda Forever, which made it four times bigger. You know, not only Namor, but Atuma and Namora, Riri, 
the Midnight Angel. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that. Yeah, Nakia. Yeah, it's not just okay. We're gonna now. No, they we are have superheroes. Yeah, huge uh, yeah. order of superheroes. We had a new military, the Navy, yeah. that was not seen in the first one. So I was like, everybody, calm down, <laughs> calm down. We <laughs> we have a lot on our plate. Yeah. And and uh, also, um, did it affect? I don't know how they did this, but that the costumes were underwater in some scenes. Yes, and, the and that then affects it. Well, yeah. There's the historical anchor of the Mayans that were above ground. We had a little part of the film that dealt with the history and and how they went into the water and created this fictitious uh, universe underwater. And so we had a 20 foot tank on the stage. That they said, anytime you want to put something in the tank, you go right ahead. And I'm like, are there lights in there? Is there a camera? Am I just going to dunk it in? I can do that home in my bathtub. <laughs> what am I going to learn from that? So it was really learning on camera. Yeah. You know, and that was daunting. I bet. And we had free divers who were not used to uh, wearing costumes in, in water. And one of the really great free divers that we we uh, had, he was like, you know, I think if they had developed an underwater world, they would just wear this little Speedo. This is all they would wear. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're going to wear a headdress and a cape. <laughs> That's so, so true. I had like that discussion <laughs> so many times with the divers, like, you know, wow. And but when you see it, you know, floating. And yeah. We had to do learn a lot, a lot of weights we put in the costumes, you know, so that they would flow the way you would think it would be like ballet and everything is beautiful once it gets in the water, but no, everything just goes straight up. Yeah. So we had to balance all yeah. of these costumes. Well and halfway through was it halfway through prep that you found out it was going to be a different movie than you thought and now you had it to do it was not even halfway through okay. prep i had just started but okay. ryan had been writing the story for some time and and speaking with chad and and uh so we were maybe i was maybe maybe 5 weeks in and heard the news and uh was pretty stunned wondered what we were going to do mm. And, you know, how come we didn't know? And how I would have loved to embrace him, uh, but he went on his own terms. On his terms, yeah. So you have to, you know, honor that. And so I was good with whatever decision was going to happen at mm. that point. I just felt so, like, sad. Yeah. And I can't imagine for everybody on the crew who had been part of the first one, I mean, I, I, I feel like you feel it in watching the movie, mm -hmm. especially those opening scenes, mm -hmm. that you're watching you all mourn. The costuming in that, I loved reading about how you had talked to a, was it a historian or a someone? historian yeah. on West African. He talked about how there's two colors, either white or red, that are worn for funerals in some African societies. And... Uh, Ryan Coogler decided that we would honor honor King T'Challa with white, mm. pure white. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, not camera white, pure white. So, you know, how do you find that much pure white that also still feels like it's traditional African? Mm. And so we printed a lot of symbols. We printed the heart-shaped herb. 
we printed into ballet prints, we embroidered Queen Ramonda, we sought to bring the same print styles and recognizable combinations of patterns and and shapes that you see when you see um, Ankara fabric made up in the South African drapes, you know, the Zulu. We went through all the tribes, the Tuareg, the Zulu, the Indibele, the the Turkana, and we made sure that their silhouettes were right and that we could bring in some of their traditional prints by printing the fabric. So the aging and dyeing department was, you know, on overload, <laughs> for sure. And uh, then as I we were painting a lot of the beadwork uh, that we were buying, you know, that was kind of the stuff that was made in China, nothing that was our original or authentic we were painting a lot of uh, beadwork, and and then I realized that I could combine some of the colors um, from the beadwork to actually even uh, make that image even stronger of where their tribe was from. So you, when you saw this procession, if you were in person, you saw all of these pockets of tribes from all over Africa that were dressed wow. similar. And that was so rewarding. It was like all of Africa had united to come together to celebrate the life of the king. Mm. It's beautiful. Oh, that's when Hannah Beekler and I were just all crying on snotty nose. No, oh. oh, God, it was, but it was beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. You know, and she painted the billboard with T'Challa's face, and the drummers were up on the rooftops, and we made the Royal King's Guard in their uniform in white and and had done all this raised printing and shield work and molds that were all done with white. Hmm. It was a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, and that's just the opening scene. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It was my favorite day, though. Hmm. I mean, how do you follow that up? Do you even try? Do you? Are you still staying in that present moment like when you were... An apprentice well, years I'm ago. not like a observer. I'm active. Mm. So, what does that um, mean to you? So, I'm out there like retying people's turbans. <laughs> I'm I'm out there telling you know someone after a take, you looked fantastic. <laughs> the camera came right by you, and whatever it was you were doing, do it again. Mm. I am so uh, immersed in everything. I'm checking everyone. Um, a lot of times these things, uh, these costumes are just drapes and the actor may have a hard time kind of like managing. So I'm going back over to them, you know, helping them understand like how they can manage through the scene. I'm rejoicing. Yeah. I'm also like, I feel like, you know, the mother hen, the best friend, the the comrade. So I might go up to an actor and just have a conversation. I usually play around, you know, and I say, oh, this is my favorite costume. The whole thing is, is my favorite costume. And then I'll turn to, you know, the next actor standing right next to them and say, you know, this is my favorite costume. <laughs> it's like having a favorite child. They're all your favorite child. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fun to see it in action. Yeah. How do you stay excited and fresh in the, you know, every new movie that comes around the bend? How, how do you stay at this 
point, your career has spanned decades and you're still, you can feel mm -hmm. the excitement in you talking about it. It's not hard at all. It's like uh, you every time you paint a painting, uh, yeah, you know the paints and you know the brushes and you have a t style and a technique, but you're excited about the new subject or the new colors. And as you put these costumes together and you go through a you go through a process that sometimes it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and then it works you know this process of of fixing and fixing and fixing is not unlike an artist painting a canvas yeah i love the process and when there are those times uh that i wake up in the morning early and the idea comes to me and i'm excited to get to the office to tell my team how we're gonna how we're gonna fix that problem, you know. Sometimes I just need a night's rest, and we fix the problem. And the actor comes in, and they're like, "Wow, this is great!" And then my team gets it back again, and they tweak it and tweak it and tweak it, and then it appears on set. How can you not be excited about that? Mm. This has been uh, such a gift. This has been such a treat, I think, Thank for you. all of us to sit and just be nerds and listen to your creative process. is so cool. And um, as big fans, thank, thank you for you. like sharing with us and oh, letting really us learn about how you do what you do. I want to encourage listeners. The book is out now. You can get it anywhere books are sold, I'm sure. I loved it. I read it cover to cover, looked at all the pictures. Um, so thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Yeah. It's been amazing. Yeah, this has been a treat. I hope the next time you do, you know, Black Panther 3 or whatever, oh. you'll come back and tell us about that one too. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure I do. Maybe I'll come ahead of time. You'll see how nervous I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That sounds like what should be in your process is just a quick podcast interview. But thank you so much. You're this welcome. was wonderful. I appreciate it. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.